today. Good to see you guys out. We're supposed to have missionary Matthew Ferran today as our speaker, missionary to the Philippines, uh, but his wife's, uh, I think, mother uh, was put in the hospice and they had to stay close to home. And so you guys have to put up with me today as the speaker, okay? Uh, I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving, though, and got to enjoy some turkey or ham, or prime rib, or tofu turkey, or something, right? Uh, anybody have, how many had turkey? <clears throat> All right, most of you out there. Anybody have a ham? You had turkey and ham? Uh, game hen? Anybody game hen? Salmon, prime rib, golden corral? You have it all? All right. Uh, well, I hope you did get something good. More importantly, I hope you had some time to reflect on God's goodness in your life. And we have been in a series called Essential, uh, talking about, about the parts of our faith that we can't do without. And this morning, we're in the final week of the series. Today, we have a topic uh, that might make you do a double take, uh, at first glance anyway. Our topic today is losing is essential. And that's right, I said losing is essential. And this is not a message about considering your New Year's resolutions, uh, losing pounds, losing habits, losing negativity. Yeah, those might be some good ideas, but that's not where we're going today. We're going to get started in Luke chapter 5 this morning, where we will read the first 11 verses. So, uh, head to Luke chapter 5, and as you head that way, don't forget that Christmas Sunday is coming up three weeks from today on December 20th, and we also have our special candlelight service this year on December 23rd, and so uh, looking forward to those events that are coming up. Look at Luke chapter 5, starting in verse number 1. And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake. But the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust down a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draw. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come out and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him at the draught of the fishes which they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him." You know, verse 11 is such a convicting verse, and it really sets the stage for our topic today, losing is essential. 
To win Christ, we must be willing to lose everything else. And today we're going to see the realistic demands of discipleship. There's this false narrative going around in modern Christianity, especially American Christianity, that following Jesus is just like adding something to your life, right? Add, adding an app to your phone, okay, we got him on there, or adding Jesus to the plans and the values you already have, uh, throwing him into your planner alongside everything else. And we're going to see this morning that discipleship requires just a little more than that. Actually, it requires a lot more than that, and, and there is a reluctance to lose the comforts and hopes and dreams and plans that I have for my life. And Peter had this reluctance. Uh, he was reluctant to let the nets back down. He's like, Jesus, look, I, I know you mean well, but we've toiled all night and taken nothing, and we are professional fishermen. I mean, you're a carpenter. But hey, if you want me to let down the nets, I'll let down the nets. And it was only after the nets were so full that they began to break and their load began to sink the ships that Peter came to the realization that this Jesus was more than a sideshow. He was more than a one-day-a-week attraction. He was more than a convenience, uh, more than a temporary benefit or a partial commitment. He was everything. He was completely worth living for. And he gave them an offer. Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. Talking about their souls. And, and Peter and his fishing partners all agreed. They brought their ships to land, forsook all, and followed Jesus. Because the upside was eternally worthwhile. Now the downside was losing all the things that they had valued as important up to this point. And that's where we'll get started today. And the notes are provided in your bulletin or on the YouVersion app if you want to follow along. Let's talk first about losing life's predictable set of values. Losing life's predictable set of values. Now, we sometimes uh, do these interesting things at, at family dinner. And at the end of dinner last night, uh, Amy came up with this thing. I don't know where she got it from, but she's asking the kids, if you're stuck on a desert island and, and, they, could all, and they could deliver you one food every day, what would you want? And I, at first, you know, I kind of was thinking about, well, if they could deliver you food, why couldn't they just take you off the stinking island? Right? But, but anyway, we played the game, and so the kids were all saying what they wanted, and she asked me, well, what would you want? And I said, well, it depends. Because uh, right now, I can't taste or smell anything. Uh, it's been, I've, I've been over coronavirus for a few weeks, but it's still that lingering taste-smell issue. And, and so I just chose eggs, because they'd keep you alive. But you, you can't taste them uh, right now anyway. So, uh, but it got me to thinking, if you're on board a ship, and there's a catastrophe, and you make it on board a lifeboat with just your family... Uh, and the lifeboat drifts to a deserted island, what are your first thoughts? What are you thinking? Do they have Wi-Fi? Right? No. Uh, you're thinking, where are we going to get fresh water? Right? Where are we going to get food? How, how are we going to start a fire? What's our shelter going to be? Where are we going to get clothes? How will we survive? 
Now, I know on the Sunday after Thanksgiving and the Sunday after Black Friday that this might be hard to believe. Do they still have Black Friday this year? I don't know. Did anybody, did anybody go anywhere? You went somewhere? Okay. I didn't know if they even had it. Uh, I don't know if you know this, and I'm not trying to make you feel guilty if you have stuff, because we were Americans and we have stuff, but you know, one-third of the people in the world live in survival mode every single day, right? They're just trying to survive. They live on less than $2 a day. I don't know if you can imagine this, less than $2 a day. And, and when you're trying to survive, you only have one priority, you know what it is? Surviving. Right? That's your only priority. In the first world, we don't get this because we have a much different set of priorities. Right? If your biggest priority yesterday was getting your nap in, then you live in the first world. Okay? Now that was, by the way, that was my biggest priority yesterday. Uh, once I found out the Boise State game was canceled, I figured God must have intended me to have a nap at that time. And so we got that in. Uh, but you live in the first world. Now, survival literally doesn't even make the list for a great majority of people. It doesn't even make the list of our priorities. But uh, the world in which Jesus lived was closer to the third world of today than the first world. And uh, Jesus even talked about this in Matthew 6. He was addressing people who had to think about where they would get food and where they would get water and where they would get clothing and where they would get lodging. And you might remember he told them, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what, uh, what are we going to wear? He said, for after all these things the Gentiles seek. And your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And the priority list that Jesus gives is tough, no matter who you are and when you live. He said you have to lose life's predictable set of values, lodging, clothing, food, occupation, family. Everything that these men had deemed valuable was left behind on the shore of that lake so that they could truly and fully follow Christ. And, and anyone who authentically becomes a disciple of Jesus has one of these turning points where we decide to follow Him and there is no turning back, even if nobody goes with us, even uh, if we don't have anything, even if it costs us everything, we follow Him. And uh, we don't always follow through on our following. Uh, if you know what I'm talking about, you've made decisions as a child of God before, if you're a Christian, that you didn't follow through on, and so have I. But, but the turning point on values and priorities is as real as it gets. And that's why I love Luke 5.11. Uh, to me, it is such a visible reminder that discipleship has a cost. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed Him. Now, let's talk next about losing personal plans and pursuits. Losing personal plans and pursuits. A few years after these guys left their ships and followed Jesus, 
uh, he expressed to them and some others the full cost of discipleship. And move now to Luke chapter 14. And let's see for ourselves what Jesus presented as the test of discipleship. Okay, Luke 14. And I want you to uh, look at this passage. We'll read a little bit of it here, starting in verse number 25. And there went great multitudes with them, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest happily, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold, he began to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth the conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Now, when prospective disciples first met Jesus... They were always introduced with a come-and-see philosophy. Now, you may remember if you've read in, in the book of John, John chapter 1, John the Baptist had pointed out Jesus to a couple of his disciples. And he, Jesus is walking by. He says, Behold the Lamb of God. And, and two of them went to follow Jesus. Uh, and as they followed Jesus, Jesus turned around and said, Hey, what seek ye? What are you guys looking for? And they said, Master, where dwellest thou? And you remember what he told them? Come and see. Come and see. Come and see for yourself. That's the entry point of discipleship. That's where Jesus always starts it. Come and see. And, and soon they found out that Jesus didn't actually dwell anywhere. He owned no property. His pillow was a stone. And yet they were hooked by his love and his character and his teachings and his miracles. And, and they stayed. And the closer they became to Christ, the more they understood the ultimate call, which is what Jesus gives here in Luke 14 and other passages. And we read it in verse 27, whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And they heard this like, bear his cross. You mean like figuratively? He's like, no, literally, right? Many of the people who follow me are going to be killed for their beliefs. And so his disciples had to move from come and see to come and die. That's why Jesus said, Whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. And if you're really going to follow Jesus, your entire life becomes about his purpose and His will, and His plans. And, and for those who aren't committed to Jesus, you got relatives who, they're not on the Jesus team, they're not Jesus followers, they're not even remotely disciples, and they'll watch your life for a while, 
And uh, being that committed to Jesus seems out of bounds to them. They're like, well, what in the world? Does your God expect you to give up all your plans and your pursuits to do His will? That's ridiculous. But for those who are committed to Christ, uh, you know, we feel like we haven't even given enough. Uh, We feel like this is reasonable service. Jesus sacrificed Himself for me. And presenting my body as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, is just reasonable service in return. And and what's more, the people who actually commit to Christ this way, you look at them. You look at people who are truly committed to Christ. You know what they always are? The most fulfilled, joyful people on the planet. They are. They're the most fulfilled, joyful people on the planet because they're doing what they've been made to do for an eternal cause. And there is no higher calling, there's no greater purpose, but there is a cost. The prize is infinitely greater than the cost, but there is a cost. And you have to lose personal plans and pursuits to win the will of God. Now, we fall into the trap way too often of thinking that our lives belong to us right? Our bodies belong to us. Our time belongs to us. Our, my money belongs to me. My possessions belong to me. And, and we, you know, we fall in this trap over and over. It may not even be on purpose. It may be inadvertently. We don't really mean to think that way, but we do. And, you know, we do it with our kids, too, as if our kids belong to us. And they weren't created by God and placed in our environment so that we could raise them in the way they should go. And, and instead of asking the, our kids, our kids, hey, what do you think God wants you to do with the one and only life He's given you? We say things like this, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right? What, what are your future plans? What are your dreams? What do you hope to do after high school? Or what do you hope to do after college? And in doing this, we fall smack dab into the trap of clutching personal plans and pursuits as our own. We begin to think it all belongs to us. The choices belong to us and the things belong to us. And I love how James reminds us of this flawed artificial thinking uh, in James 4. And he's talking to him. He says, hey, all you folks out there that say, uh, you know, today or tomorrow, we're going to go to this city, and we're going to continue there a year, and we're going to buy and sell. We're going to get gain. We're going to do this. And, and you say, well, who's he talking to? He's talking to basically everyone who has ever had their own plan of life and how it's supposed to go. So he's talking to me. Presumably, he's talking to you. And then he makes this profound statement. And this is probably my life verse, the verse I kind of go to the most in my entire life to recenter and refocus. James 4.14. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, yesterday morning, the entire Boise State football team woke up and went and had breakfast and started getting loose and getting ready. And then about nine-something in the morning, they found out they weren't going to have a game. 
even though their game was going to be on national TV, at home, in the middle of the afternoon, never happened before, right? That everything, their plans were gone. And if we've learned anything this year, we probably should have learned not to make plans, right? Don't make them too firmly. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, and then he asked this question, and this is the most piercing question. He says, for what is your life? What is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Wow. Then he goes on, he says, for that you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. Now, if your first consideration at everything is not for God's will and God's purpose, then you are not really living as a Jesus follower. That's abrupt, but that's a fact. Now, I want to look at a real-life example from Scripture who had to make these win-or-lose decisions about following God. And you may have heard of him before. His name is Moses. And uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. And it's interesting that God gives us a summary of Moses' life here in Hebrews 11. And let's look at that summary as we talk about this third part of the message, losing the pleasures of Egypt. Losing the pleasures of Egypt. And let's read a section here in Hebrews 11, starting in verse number 24. By faith, Moses... When he was come to years, uh, by the way, if you like to underline in your Bible, uh, this section that we're about to read, I underline all the verbs, the action verbs, because they're huge. They make such sense if you look at this. So we go, by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused, that's, that's an important word, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Look at verse 25, here's another one, choosing choosing rather to suffer, suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. As an infant, Moses was found floating in the Nile River, and, and the Pharaoh's daughter is the one who found him. She claimed him as her own child. Uh, he grew up in the palace. He received every bit of Egyptian education that there was to offer. He knew all about the customs of medicine, society, religion. And it was assumed that Moses would be part of Egyptian royalty when he came to age. He might possibly become the Pharaoh one day. And then Moses, of his own accord, by his own choice, sided with the Jews, the slaves. Moses chose to side with the people of God, and it seemed incomprehensible for a prince to abandon the palace, to forsake the riches, to choose suffering. But that's exactly what Moses did. And Moses stood up for a Jew who was being mistreated, ended up killing an Egyptian, hiding his body in the sand. He chose to lose the pleasures of Egypt by backing the Hebrews. 
And when the Pharaoh heard what Moses had done, he put a price on his head. Moses ran for his life. He lived as an exile in Midian for 40 years. 40 years. That is a really long time. Right? That's a really long time. All the choices he had made those years before faded from his memory. Right? Faded from his memory. He's now just another shepherd in the wilderness. But long after Moses had forgotten... God miraculously reminded him of what he had lost by choice and then what he would win. And in God's timetable, Moses chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He esteemed the reproach of Christ as greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And I love the end of verse 26. He had respect under the recompense of the reward. He lost the pleasures of Egypt for the prize of following God. And this is one of those times when losing is winning, when losing is essential. In 26 years of ministry, sadly, I have seen the reverse of this way too many times. As people have given up their testimony for a moment of pleasure, people have given up their family for a season of sin, people have given up their future potential for God in pursuit of the immediate. Bob Jones Sr. said this, such a powerful quote, he said, never sacrifice the permanent on the altar of the immediate. That's that's powerful. Never sacrifice the permanent on the altar of the immediate, like Esau. Esau comes in one day. He's been out hunting. And if you've ever been out hunting, you know how hungry you get, right? You're just famished, and you're walking and walking and walking. And Esau, he didn't have cliff bars. He didn't even have generic protein bars, right? He's back in the day when they had to actually kill the food to eat it. And he comes in the house And his brother Jacob's in the kitchen, and he's got this huge pot of chili on the stove, right? Now, if you've ever been out in the cold and the wet and the rain, is there anything better than a bowl of chili, right? There are guys who actually carry cans of chili with them, and then they just throw it on the fire and pop the top and drink it down because it's so powerful. It's so good for you as you go out there. And, and so he comes in, there's this big bowl of chili cooking, and Esau says, hey, give me some of your chili, man. i got to have some. And Jacob says, well, let's make a deal. You give me your birthright, I'll give you a bowl of chili. And Esau says, well, what good's my birthright going to do if I die of hunger? Give me the chili. He gives away his birthright for a bowl of chili. He sacrificed the permanent on the altar of the immediate. And that's what so many times we do. We can't overcome the urge of the immediate, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. And and people sacrifice permanent things for a short season of sin. Moses reversed that. Moses looked 
for the long-term effect of his decisions. And he made the right choice. Yes, he lost out on the pleasures of Egypt, but he gained infinitely more than he had lost. Now, I want you to go with me to our final passage of the day in Philippians chapter 3. And early in the series, uh, we studied our way through Philippians 2, uh, the entire chapter. Today, as we close out the series, we're going to look at this part of Philippians 3. And this is, I believe, one of the foundational discipleship passages in all of Scripture, especially in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 3, and let's start in verse number 4. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh... If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. So Paul's saying, listen, if anybody thought they could get to God by their works, it was me. He says, I never met anybody who had the fleshly religious credentials that I had. So here was, here was credentials. Verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Let's talk lastly today about losing the peer-based approval system. Losing the peer-based approval system. And that's the system that most of us have been under our entire lives. Uh, before Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he had lived his entire life to obtain the pedigree demanded by the religious hierarchy. He had spent all his time trying to meet the demands of other human beings, but he could never meet their expectations. And maybe you've been through this before, uh, living vast sections of your life trying to please other people and trying to perform to the level of their expectations. It might have been your parents. It could have been your bosses. It could have been a teacher or a friend or an enemy or even yourself. But you could never measure up. And it seemed like there was no hope. There was no way out of the rat race. When I was a senior in college. Uh, you know, I, I may have been a little bit big-headed or stubborn, uh, but the college president called me in one day, and we butted heads a little bit, and he, he uh, had been a Green Beret in uh, the Vietnam War. He was rough as they come, and I was in his office, and he told me, you know what? He said, I'll give you two years, and you'll be out of the ministry, right? And he kind of looked at me and gave me scuff, and then he sent me out. Well, you know what? Those first two years of ministry, I was motivated to stay in ministry for one reason, right? I was going to make it two years in ministry 
just so I could spite that guy. Right? And then even after that, I continued to stay in ministry just so I could keep spiting that guy. So I made it four years. I'm like, look at me now, bro. Right? I make it six years. Look down here. Look at this. And it even I had been a pastor for years, and one day I kind of woke up to how idiotic this was. That I'm trying to minister and live my life so that I can spite a guy who doesn't even know I'm trying to spite him. That seems kind of dumb, doesn't it? But you know, we all do this, right? We, we do things in the neighborhood to keep up with other people in the neighborhood. It's the peer approval. We do things at the workplace to keep up with the peer approval at the workplace. And in school, we do things to keep up with the peer approval at the school. And, and here we are living our lives in this rat race of peer approval. And that's where Paul was. He was a Jew through and through. He had the tribal pedigree. He had memorized the Scriptures, all of them, right? All the known Scriptures he had memorized. He knew all the laws. He knew all the rituals necessary to be a Pharisee of the Pharisees. But it wasn't enough to gain his way to heaven. I'm sure that you know that there is no earthly religious system that offers a viable path to heaven. And you know that because you're really smart. Uh, no, you know that because you have the New Testament. <laughs> but, but Paul didn't have the New Testament, and he didn't know that. And he thought that it all depended on him. And he thought uh, that if he did everything that was expected of him, that he would then reach the level of perfection. And then he met Jesus, and everything changed. And he realized that it was the righteousness of Jesus that saves us, not our own righteousness. It was the sacrifice of Jesus that saves us, not the religious sacrifices that we make. And I want you to consider again verse 7. Look what he says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. And Paul willingly forcefully took everything he had been living for since he was a child, and he counted it loss for Christ. He wrote it off. He abandoned it. He realized the certificates were just pieces of paper, and he might have even burned them. You know, when I was probably 14 or 15, uh, in my bedroom on the back of our house in Oklahoma City, I lived in what they called the Florida Room. Uh, which is a beautiful name, but what it really means is you don't have heat or air conditioning, right? It's just basically a, a back porch that has been boxed in with these windows, and uh, you're just out there. And, and I had this one wall in that room where I kept all the trophies and the ribbons, and I had these ribbons, you know, sixth place in the push-up contest, and and a sixth place in the sit-up contest, and it's like, how many guys were in the contest? Yeah, like probably six. I don't know. But, uh, but all these ribbons and these trophies and, and, uh, and all the things that were special and important, and they were on this one wall. And I, I went through Oklahoma City several years ago, and that room like 
was just full of junk and stuff. And I'm like, where'd my trophies go? And my mom said, well, I didn't know they were important to you. We threw them away. Like, you threw away my trophies? You threw away my knickknacks? You threw away all my ribbons? What about when I did all those push-ups? And what about my sit-up contest? And what about when I got fourth place in the 100 meters with those four guys? And, and it's like, what in the world? And, uh, you know, all that stuff, I hadn't even thought about it for years, right? It hadn't been important to me. And because it hadn't been important to me, she didn't think it was important. She threw it out. It all was as loss. But then Paul gets even more aggressive, verse 8. I mean, he gets really aggressive. When I say aggressive, I mean that in verse 8, Paul uses the harshest word found in the Greek New Testament. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Now, the King James translators use the English word dung, but the Greek word is much worse. It's the word scubula or scubalon. Paul counted all the things he had lived for as the worst possible refuse in humanity. He counted it as material that the dogs wouldn't even come near. All his great human performance was thrown out as scubula that he might win Christ. And you might be at the same place Paul was. All those things you're living for right now, what meaning will they have in eternity? And what do they even really mean on the earth right now? Uh, you got the highest score in a Fortnite game. Woo! Right? Uh, you, you beat your buddy at the arcade. <laughs> it's huge, right? You found a Pokemon. It's big, big stuff. And it could be that you need to lose the peer-based approval system that is taking you nowhere so that you can win Christ and be found in Him. And there is a point in every person's life where the scubula has meaning and importance. But as we transition from children to adults... It's supposed to not be as important. Paul said, when I was a child, I spake as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. And there's a point in your life where scuba is important. And maybe uh, you still have kids or grandkids that you're trying to potty train. And we have one that we're trying to potty train at our house right now. And he does just fine with number one. Like he's in the game on number one. But the number two game, he don't even want to play, right? He doesn't want to sit there for any time at all. He doesn't want to make an effort. He just wants to go sneak around in a corner and uh, find a way to do it there in his pull-up. And so I told him the other day, I sat down with him and I said, look, here's the deal, man. We got to fix this, okay? I, this is no good for any of us. Like, I can't smell right now, which is an advantage at this point with this thing, but 
at some point, we got to figure it out, dude. And, and I told him, listen, if you will do a poo-poo in the potty, we will cheer for you. Like, everybody in the house will come in the bathroom, hop up and down, and clap our hands, and say, you did a poo-poo, you did a poo-poo, you did a poo-poo. Right? Now, if you have to cheer for your seven-year-old to do that, things aren't looking up at your place, okay? If you have to cheer for your 15-year-old to do that, things are really, really bad at your place. Right? There's a point where we cheer for Scoobies, okay? But there comes a point where we no longer should have to cheer for Scoobies. They should just be a part of life. And it's the same way with this peer-based approval and with us trying to find these ways to get to God on our own. Uh, listen, if you're still cheering yourself on because you came to church on Sunday, you missed the whole point. If you're still cheering yourself on because you opened your Bible app once in the week, you missed the whole point. You have to count your peer-based approval, your human religious forms as scubalists so that you can win Christ. And if you're still cheering that stuff on, it's time to lose the old approval system. Now look at what Paul transitioned to. He said, I count it all as dung that I may win Christ and be found in Him. He goes on to say this in verse 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. He said, I had to change my whole motivation. And my motivation became Jesus, knowing Him, serving Him, loving Him. He says in another place, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He said, Jesus is all I live for. And you go down to verse 13, he says, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And, and so really, as our faith challenge says, losing is the first step in winning the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And, and the question has to come to us, well, what do you need to lose today? Is it the idea that all the plans and all the purpose belongs to you? Is it just the daily routines that you've fallen in love with instead of Jesus? Is it the peer-based approval where you need somebody to pat you on the back to serve Jesus? Whatever it is you need to lose today, as we close out this series, I pray that you'll lose that and serve Jesus with your life. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that we could get in your word today and, and be reminded of what it looks like to truly be disciples. And, and we all, every single one of us, are in this struggle where we continuously fall into the trap of placing the wrong things as our priority.
uh, of thinking that these decisions and these choices belong to us instead of you. And, and sometimes we fall into the trap of this approval system. I pray that you would release us from these things today, that we might know you and the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your suffering, being made conformable unto your death. Guide us now as we go through this week. Help us to be shining lights for you in this community. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.